All right, we are going. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I'm glad you're tuned in because today we have another guest. We have another special guest interview, and it's really going to be talking about uh, a view of grace that you may not be aware of. Uh, being a free grace person or a biblical grace person, there's always this false dichotomy of people. These individuals always believe if you're not a Calvinist, you're an Arminianist. And if you're not an Arminianist, you're a Calvinist. Well, is that the case? Is this either or fallacy a legitimate charge? And so we're here with Dr. Fred Shea from the Grace School of Theology. He's got a bachelor's of psychology degree from Notre Dame, a master's of science in psychology from California Western, a master's in theology and a doctorate in a ministry, both from Dallas Theological and a PhD from Trinity Theological, as well as the Dean of Doctor of Ministry Studies. He's a professor of systematic and pastoral theology from the Grace School of Theology in Texas. This is Dr. Fred Shea. That's a lot of credentials, Fred. That's a lot of credentials. I just, I thank you for being here today. I don't want to commit the fallacy of authority uh, just because of all the credentials you have. But ladies and gentlemen watching this video, this individual has done a lot of studying, a lot of academic pursuit in the things of God and the theology of God. So we do well just to see what, what insight he's gained through this pursuit. So Fred, we just thank you for being with us today. Well, Daniel, it's a joy to be here. Uh, I'm here in Dallas, Texas, sweltering away in the 100 degrees. Uh, you're in Alabama. I'm sure you're doing the same. And then for those who are watching, I hope they're not as warm as we are. But it's a delight to be here. I um, have been at Grace School of Theology for six years. Before that, I was at Phoenix Seminary for 21 years and had the opportunity to teach theology there. And, and actually, my last 10 years, I got to be with Dr. Wayne Grudem. Dr. Grudem is a very, very well-known Reformed uh, theologian. He's a, a wonderful man godly man and has uh, contributed to the church in incredible ways with much of his writing about ethics and government and theology, uh, although he and I might not agree on this exact point. Um, but my, tr my pathway to this whole topic was kind of interesting. I grew up in California and uh, became a believer, went to Ray Stedman's church, Peninsula Bible Church in the early days of the hippie movement, and then got actually exposed to John MacArthur and started listening to everything he said and believed a lot of what he said. And when I went to Dallas Seminary to work on my THM, I got exposed to a number of other views and began to realize that, well, maybe that's, maybe there's another way. So I ended up writing my THM thesis on Lordship Salvation as taught by John MacArthur. Now this was before any of these books were written. This is before he wrote any of the books that he wrote. And he kindly gave me a, a lot of his time on the phone, and we met in person to talk through to make sure that what I was saying about him was what he actually was saying. And I remember our last time getting together, uh, we had breakfast, and of course he bought, because I was just a little seminary guy, I didn't have any money. He bought breakfast, he was in for the big Christian booksellers convention, and just wanted to make sure one last time, do I have it straight? Is this what you taught? He said, everything you've said about me is exactly right, that's exactly what I believe, he said, this is a very important topic. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? I think I need to write a book about this. And so then he wrote the gospel according to Jesus. And that opened up this discussion for 25 years, 30 years ago, just all over the map. So uh, for me, it's been a very long uh, trail 
of studying and learning and growing. And I think the one thing for me is because I have such respect for Dr. MacArthur and Dr. Grudem and many of these folks, uh, Dr. J.I. Packer, who just passed away, um, who I met years and years ago, but I have great respect for these men. And, and I understand, I think I understand their theological position. I just don't happen to agree with all of it. So when we talk about this, when we quote debate this and whatnot, this is an inside dis debate. This is an inside family discussion. These, this is with people who have an incredibly high view of the Bible, the authority of scripture. So we're not talking about liberal conservative. We're talking about conservative evangelicals with total respect for the authority of the Bible. We just happen to see things a little different when we come to the soteriological perspective. Hey Amen. You, you had mentioned uh, the gospel according to Jesus, and I couldn't help but uh, I wanted to promote the gospel of doubt which is uh, a book that goes over the gospel according to Jesus and it just looks at some of the things that are said in that particular book and looks at it from a biblical standpoint. But I love what you said that the discussion, the soteriological discussion between uh, our view and the view of Calvinism or even Arminianism, a lot of people would say that there's a lot of disgust. There's a lot of hate in the debate. And, and that's not what uh, the aim should be. That's not how we're supposed to be discussing and, and debating these things or arguing these things. But it's a matter of a lot of times these debates get very heated and get very personal. But like you said, it, whether it's a Calvinist or whether it's a, a different view, more often than not, the people that are arguing their position are doing it lovingly and graciously in their adherence to the strict literal interpretation of the word of God. And so we would just all do well if we are getting into a discussion with somebody of a different view of this, to just continue being with grace, continue being meek about it, continue having uh, sought to preserve, to go ahead and, and have a, a thought that's continued uh, on their mind. That way our personality, our conflict, our personal attack doesn't detract from the overall message of, of the theology that we're trying to go ahead and just discuss. But a lot of times there's a, a heated attack and, and a personal attack on the individual, and that's not the aim, and that's not the aim of this. So, well, we have a bunch of questions we want to ask you. And uh, so if you're ready, I want to jump right in. I'm ready. The first question, first question is going to be, People claim, and I sort of alluded to this earlier, that if one is not a Calvinist, then naturally they're an Arminian. But I would argue that's a, a false dichotomy. It's an either-or fallacy. Could you explain what is free grace theology and how does it differ from Arminianism and Calvinism? Well, you know, it's so much fun to put people in a box and give them a label. Because that way you can move them around and do what you want with them. And it would be nice if we simply had a binary option, right, an either or, but as in most things, we don't. Um, when you look on the spectrum of conservative evangelical thinking, on the far left, and I don't mean left being liberal and right being conservative, I just got to pick sides, on one extreme, one pole, you would have what would be calling an extreme Arminianism, which would be something like open theism or neo-theism or free will theism that would articulate that God doesn't even know all of the future. Okay, now most Arminians don't go there, thankfully. Uh, Clark Pinnock did. Uh, Clark Pinnock was a very uh, uh, well-known theologian who 
uh, had contributed to the inerrancy debates early on. He was a very nice man from Canada, uh, mildly charismatic and definitely um, Arminian. But he went to an extreme that God doesn't even know the future. And that sounded a little more like process theology or process philosophy. That's a problem. If you go to the far other side of the pole, you might be what is called a hyper-Calvinist, where no free will, you're totally dead, there's nothing here, and you don't even have to talk to people because God will make sure everybody gets saved who's supposed to get saved, so we just proclaim. Now, in between those two polarities, you have normal Arminians, normal Calvinists of some stripe. And then, of course, the question, well, where's free grace? Well, of course, free grace is in the middle. <laughs> We're in the right in the middle. We're in the sweet spot. So how do we differ or how are we similar? Free grace theology holds to some elements of Calvinism in certain ways. It holds to some views of Arminianism in certain ways. Now, how do I mean that? If you went through the typical teaching of TULIP, right, that's the Calvinistic um, TULIP, you know, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. There's some things there that, that free grace definitely does not hold. Although we might hold what is called total depravity, we do not hold to total inability. In other words, we are still born in the image of God, even though we're, we're effaced, it's not erased. Norm Geisler, one of my former apologetic teachers, used to talk like that. And he would say, we still retain the image of God, therefore we can still believe. We do still have some spiritual sensitivity. Pharaoh had sensitivity. His spirit was troubled. Nebuchadnezzar, his spirit was troubled. So obviously, there's some sort of sense that there's a, a spiritual sensitivity. Dead doesn't mean non-existent. Dead just means separated. Well, we're definitely separated from God, but that doesn't mean we can't believe. Unconditional election. We believe God elects people, but that's not apart from what people do. People do have the ability to act. They can resist grace, whereas Calvinism would teach irresistible grace. Obviously, when Jesus talked to the, Matthew 23, he talked to the religious leaders, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often did I want to gather you, but you were not willing. Willing? You were not willing. You have a willer. You got a willer. It's a defective willer, but you got a willer, and you weren't willing. So, all those who choose can have eternal life. Well, then I'm culpable, responsible, because I'm able to respond. In terms of the L in TULIP, limited atonement, um, you know, Calvinists struggle with this. I mean, they have to take John 3.16 and make it into something bigger, like God so loved the world of the elect. Jesus died for the world of the elect. Of course, it doesn't say that, but your theology has to. So we would hold more to what would be called unlimited atonement. Christ died for the sins of the world, which is actually what John 3.16 says, or John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not the world of the elect. And then with perseverance of the saints, um, you know, this is really a problem. Most Calvinists would agree that no Christian is perfect and that every Christian can sin. But they can't sin much, and they better be pretty darn good to get into heaven to prove they believe. Well, we don't hold to perseverance of the saints. We do believe that God will preserve 
every Christian and they will go to heaven and we call that eternal security. But as to a person always obeying and, and eventually always coming back to the faith, I don't think so. I don't think the New Testament teaches that at all. The New Testament warns people about falling away from the faith. It warns people whose faith can be shipwrecked and overturned and all of their works can be burned up. So we would not hold to that traditional form. Now in Arminianism, we do not believe in Pelagianal thinking that man is born good and man can do anything great. No, no, there is a sin problem. Um, but with Arminianism, they do believe in unlimited atonement. We would agree with that. But in Arminianism, they would be, believe that if you don't persevere, then you, then you lose your eternal life. The Calvinist would say, if you don't persevere, that proves you never had it. The Arminian would say, well, you had it, but you lost it. Free grace says, no, we look at Christianity and say God redeems people, but they still have something flawed within. Now, whether you call that a sin nature or a fallen nature or a body of sin or whatever you want to call it, there's something there that is not perfected until glorification. So the free grace view says God is sovereign. Man has the ability to believe. Man is not perfected just because they do believe, and therefore man continues to sin. And man actually fights the battle that Paul said in Romans 7. Why do I do what I do? I don't want to do it, but I do it. The thing I don't want to do, I do. It's not me. It's the sin that dwells in me, and that's the Christian life. So I am saved by faith alone in Christ alone, period. But that doesn't mean I always obey. That doesn't mean I might not become what Paul calls carnal, fleshly, sinful. If you just sat down one day and read through the New Testament epistles and kept a red pen and circled every time Paul is exhorting Christians to stop doing something, you'd have a red Bible. And then if you took blue and marked every time in blue where Paul said, start doing this, you'd have a blue Bible. You'd have a red and blue Bible because Paul is constantly exhorting to ethical standard. Now, why does he have to do that if Christians are always going to be good because they got saved? He's not. So, whereas Calvinism and Arminianism are a wonderful system, and they are self-contained as a system, they seem to break down at the exegetical level. Now, what we are happy about, I'm happy about, the free grace movement was founded on exegetical foundation. It was based on exegesis. Zane Hodges, who was a very, very important, helpful person in doing and pre preparing the free grace modern movement, was an exegete. He was not a theologian. He was an exegete. And he provided some wonderful exegetical basis from which people have built from. And so his exegetical skill and his desire for that was very, very helpful. And to this day, free grace theology has more free grace exegetical theology than it does systematic theology. We're working on the systematics, but we spend most of our time doing exegetical work and then biblical theology. We have a lot of biblical theology, 
but now we're getting ready to have some systematic theology work. So I, I, hopefully in all that, that kind of web wove together a little bit of both of those systems. No, I really did. And I think there's a, wow, a lot of people are very familiar with Calvinism. Uh, probably less people are more familiar with Arminianism. So it was good to get not just the normal Arminian view, but even, even the far hyper Arminian, if you will. There's a couple of things you had said that I had made notes of. Uh, but <clears throat> when we look at the perseverance of the saints and, and the good works and everything, whether it's lordship, salvation type deal, I personally can't help but think of Calvin. And I don't know where Calvin is right now, but looking at how he ruled, if you will, in Geneva and what he did to the Anabaptists, I don't know how uh, we can stake our flag on Calvin's commentaries and institutes with somebody that lived completely contrary to what the Gospels and the Epistles said. The other thing is the fact of, I'm not sure why, but Calvinists like to go ahead and say that people that are free gracers don't believe in the sovereignty of God. And that's totally not the case. We do believe in the sovereignty of God so far as it's, like you said, exegeted. So far as we can see, what is God's sovereign purposes for? And how do we see this within scripture? God chose Jacob over Esau for national blessings, right? And so we see the sovereignty of God in that. But many times a Calvinist will say, see, you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Well, it, it looks like the Calvinists will uphold sovereignty and suppress the omniscience and foreknowledge of God. And for the life of me, I don't understand why that is. Uh, the next question is going to be, many associate Calvinism with uh, John Calvin. Daniel, let me make one comment about yeah, go that. Ahead. Uh, John, I can tell you exactly where John Calvin is. He's in heaven. Uh, John Calvin is like all of us who are Christians, imperfect, flawed, and had a hobby horse. We all have that. I think Calvin, uh, you know, trained as a lawyer, became a theologian um, in rhetoric, and contributed greatly at that time with exegetical work the best he could, put it together in a systematic form of the Institutes the best he could. And I think that, that man in that time did some good things. But yes, he went a little extreme. Uh, his treating of the Anabaptists, his treating of uh, Michael Servetus, uh, how he ran Geneva. Uh, I don't think Calvin was a bad man. He wasn't an evil man. He had a sensitive spirit. He wanted to serve the Lord, and he did, even with the midst, in the midst of medic, uh, difficult medical problems that he had. Uh, so he was a good man <clears throat> trying to serve the church. But always remember, you always operate in a context, and the context was the Roman Catholic Church that he was fighting the papistry, he was fighting the Pope, he was fighting the, the debauchery, the wickedness, the immoral, immorality and the heresy. So sometimes you read him, he could sound a little ferocious. And he was, but he wasn't a bad man. Now, others followed him, uh, Theodore Beza and others, they took his system even more extreme. And it really became a problem when you come down to colonial America. Because that's what came over. Beza, Theodore Beza, uh, Dort Calvinism comes over, and all of a sudden they start trying to put magistrates in place that obey the civic law, which was the spiritual law, which was the Ten Commandments, which was the code, the legal system, 
and you had a great problem. But what most people don't know is during that that colonial and uh, pre-colonial period, you know, you got you got pilgrims, you got Puritans coming over. Different, they land in different places. They they're different kinds of people, but they're basically reformed. The major movement and the major problem theologically was the free grace issue. In fact, if you don't mind me showing the book, there's a book called Making Heretics. Making Heretics. And it's written by Michael Winship, who this is his dissertation at Princeton. He now teaches at the University of Georgia. I've talked with him on the phone about his book and stuff. But let me read to you the subtitle of the book. Here's the subtitle, Making Heretics, Militant Protestantism and Free Grace in Massachusetts, 1636 to 1641. Free grace theology was the issue in pre-colonial America. Now we think of Anne Hutchinson and antinomianism and those kinds of things. That was all based upon the free grace issue. In fact, R.T. Kendall wrote a book, Calvin and English Calvinism, since 1649, and shows exactly what took place in America and the Calvinistic um, debates that were taking place, how they used the Bible, the theology that they used, and the havoc that they brought upon the church, the, the total disaster that it brought upon the church. So theology is relevant. It started our country, America. It was at the very beginning of the free grace movement in America. That's fascinating. Yeah, that that about the pilgrims and the free grace in, in the middle part of the 1600s. That's that's good information. So I appreciate that. I think where I was going with the mention about Calvin and where he is, I think where I'm trying to go with that is the fact from a Calvinist perseverance of the saints. And, and I know some Calvinists, they, they uh, interpret Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men in holiness without which no man will see God. And then I think According to Calvinist theology, holding to that particular interpretation of that verse, I was really going towards that way on how, according to a Calvinist theology, you might not be able to argue the heaven, but from a free grace position, we know it's faith alone, grace alone in Christ and the finished work of Christ on the cross for our sins. And we can completely articulate how we can trust that he's there, but it's counterintuitive with Calvinist theology and some of the Calvinist uh, forerunners, if you will, and how they were living to say that they lived out their belief set. So I want to just clarify my statement there and everything. So free grace, if he put his trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, regardless of how many of uh, Anabaptists he may have executed and exiled people, uh, he still would be in heaven because we believe in the eternal security of the believer, not based on what we've done or what we can do, but because it's the power of God unto salvation ready to be revealed at the last day. So thank you for elaborating on that and allowing me an opportunity to clarify that comment. So appreciate that. We're 30 minutes in. We're one question in. I love you, Dr. Shea. This is wonderful. This is my kind of interview. <laughs> so I'm going to skip the second question because I think we've already really touched on it fairly well. But the next question is, what is necessary to know and to understand for one to be saved and re receive eternal life? How would you explain the gospel? to an unbeliever according to free grace? Well, hopefully I'd explain the gospel according to the Bible, which is free grace. Uh, I always like the um, 
something I learned from um, uh, a group called Evantel and led by Larry Moyer, who's a free grace guy and has written a couple of good books as well. And Larry said, listen, when you meet somebody and talk with someone, you don't have too much time. You'd say, hey, listen, can I tell you the good news and the bad news? And let's start with the bad news. The bad news is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3. And the bad news gets worse. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6. But let me tell you some good news. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you believe in him, you have eternal life. And you know what? The good news is better. You've been saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. That's Ephesians 2.8. So I've told you the bad news. Here's the good news. Would you like to trust Christ to be your sin bearer? The one who gave his life for you and rose from the dead and paid your penalty and you can have eternal life. Is there any reason you would not want to trust Christ right now? So what I've done is I've said, you've got a problem. We call that the bad news. God has a solution and it's great news. And all you have to do is receive this gift. It's a gift. It's a free gift. All gifts are free by definition. All you have to do is to take it, receive it, believe it. And when you do that, You've passed from death to life and never come into judgment, John 5, 24, and that's your assurance. But notice I also pose the question, is there anything keeping you from trusting Christ right now? In other words, I'm not a, I'm not a used car salesman, but I am trying to call the question. I've shared the truth. I've given him a way to trust Christ. All she has to do now is receive the gift. But he or she needs to decide I have some questions about this resurrection. What do you mean? Tell me more about that. Well, then we'll talk. Well, I have some questions about Jesus and historicity. Well, let's talk. So I try to get it out there free and clear. They have to believe that they're a sinner. Christ is their Savior by dying and rising. And then they receive the gift that allows them to have eternal life. Sorry, I was making a note there and everything. <clears throat> I love that that question you had there, is there anything keeping you from accepting Christ as your savior today? And I love that question because it's a question that allows the individual an opportunity to say, maybe there's some things that they've questioned themselves, or maybe something that they're skeptical about. And again, that's where, uh, if anybody's familiar with this channel, that's why Christian apologetics is so needful in society today. And because we have got to try to understand and articulate why do we believe what we believe. How do we know the Bible is God's word? How do we know the New Testament is reliable? Maybe some of these are the questions that will keep an individual from trusting Christ as their savior. And if we can articulate that after studying it ourselves and not just regurgitating someone else's words, we'd be able to help them break through those barriers and those obstacles so that they wouldn't have any of those walls put up in order to trust Christ as their savior. So wonderful. Now, with that, and I know you've heard it, and most of the people watching this video heard it before, what would you say to those people that says this view is just cheap grace or easy believism? How would you respond? Well, cheap grace is a phrase that Dietrich Bonhoeffer used in his book, Cost of Discipleship. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a marvelous man, a godly man, a Lutheran pastor in Nazi Germany who went back to Nazi Germany. He was in America. He didn't have to stay here. He could have stayed here, but he decided to go back there to serve his people. 
and he was actually involved in the, the attempt to assassinate Hitler, and he was killed in a camp right before liberation came. So this is a godly man who put his, you know, his actions where his mouth was, and he served the church very well in a lot of good ways. <clears throat> um, but in his mind, real Christians have to do real things. And if you think you're a Christian, but you're not willing to be faithful, loyal, and you know, go against the evil, then that's cheap grace, he called it. And someone else called it easy believism. Well, I would look at those two descriptors and say, well, let's talk about that. Number one, grace isn't cheap. It's free. It's not cheap. It's free. Totally free to me. Now, that doesn't mean it's free to the one who extended it. So God, it cost his son. The son took on humiliation. He took on the form being found in the appearance of a man. He took on the morphine, the form of, of a man. That cost God quite a bit. But to me, it's free. Grace, by definition, is free. Not cheap, free. Now, easy believism? Now, that's almost too silly to listen to. How easy is it for a person to believe that there is a God that they can't see? How easy is it for a person to believe that some Jewish guy living 2,000 years ago died on a cross and actually rose from the dead? Have you ever seen that before? How easy is it to believe that? How easy is it to believe that there actually is, beyond the material flesh and blood, there actually is a place called heaven and a location called hell? It, are all of those things easy to believe? Of course they're not. Of course they're not. They require faith. They're supernatural. They're beyond the natural. Is that easy to believe? No. So I reject cheap grace. That doesn't even enter into it. Easy believism. Then I turn to my friend and I say, just how hard do you want it to be to receive a free gift? How hard? How much do you want me to do? Oh, I thought you said I don't have to do anything. I thought you said it wasn't by works. The people I'm talking about are conservative evangelical Calvinists who say you're saved by faith, not by works. Well, then they want to inject on the back end. You have to live good enough to prove that you had faith on the front end. And my question to all of them is simply, where is the list? How many of them do I have to keep? And how long do I have to keep them? And which are the ones that I make sure I can't ever do so that you'll know that I'm a Christian? And they don't ever have a list and they don't have any of that. That's a problem. And then on top of that, you know, the whole subjectivity of the Lordship salvation aspect on top of that there's never a mention as far as the heart's motivation of it because we can do good works, but if our heart's not motivated by love and the love of Christ through us, it's just a work that's not going to be rewarded by Christ in heaven. And so the motivation, the intents of the heart are going to be uh, unmasked. You see, uh, and you had made mention before of how hard is it to believe? And I like, look at Thomas, you know, when Jesus rose from the dead and, and he has said to Thomas, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those that have not seen and yet still believe. You know, it is very 2,000 plus years removed from the, from the life 
death, burial, resurrection of Christ. So we're looking back at the cross. And so it is not easy to put faith into that, uh, in a sense, like easy believism wants to go ahead and teach and espouse. Then the other thing, as far as works is concerned, it, Paul says it here in Romans chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh is found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glorify, but not before God. For what saith scripture, Abraham believed God, and what? It was counted to him or imputed to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justify the ungodly, his faith is counted or imputed for righteousness. And so even Abraham, one of the ways that he's the uh, father of the faith is the exhibition of his faith in God's word and his faith in the promise of the seed of Messiah coming led to the imputation of Christ's righteousness, if you will. And so... And that's why Paul goes back to Abraham as the archetypical person who has to believe. That's why Paul goes there in Romans 3 and then in 4. He talks about grace, faith, propitiation in 3. And then let's have an example. And there's your example, Abraham. Exactly. So would you be able to explain uh, the word repentance? According to Scripture, how would you define and show what is real biblical repentance? Well, now that's a question that gets arguments from all camps, all sides, all the time. Let me limit it to the free grace camp. In the free grace camp, you have people who believe repentance means a change of mind. So it's two words put together, change after or think after changing of the mind. So repentance means I look at Jesus and say, well, that's just a dead Jew. He's just a dead Jew. Well, guess what? I can't become a Christian if I don't change my mind about who I think Jesus is. He's not a dead Jew. He's the risen Lord. I think I'm a pretty good guy. I don't really need anything. Well, if I don't change my mind about that and realize that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior, if I don't change my mind, I can't become a Christian. So many people say repent is a changing of the mind. Others say repent is a turning from sin. Now, metaneo, which is the word for repent, is different than the word turn, epistrepho, or return, right? These are different words. But some people say repent means a turning from sin, <clears throat> a turning around. So it's not just <clears throat> a changing of the mind, it's a changing of the life. Now, the danger of that is if you make that the condition for eternal life, then how do you know you've turned enough? You don't. So some then say, repent is a feeling of remorse. I've changed my mind and I feel bad about something. So those are three different views all held by three different camps inside the free grace movement. Change of mind, change of, of life, change of heart or change of emotion. Now, one more thing to help make it more complicated. It's interesting that the word repent is never found in the Gospel of John, which is a book, a very important book, to tell us how to gain eternal life. It's rarely found in Romans. It's frequently found in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 and 3 when 
John is, or Jesus is talking to the seven churches and he tells these churches to repent. So John knows the word repent, but saves it for the church. But when he talks about how to become or how to gain eternal life, he never, ever uses the word. That's interesting. This has led some people to believe that the word repent is not necessary in order to become a Christian, but it is necessary to get right with God or to be in harmony with God, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. So repentance has more to do with sanctification than it does with justification. And if you looked in the Old Testament for that, you would say the Mosaic law was not given for justification. It was given for sanctification. The Abrahamic covenant was given for justification. So there's a parallel between the Old and the New Testament with the legal code and repentance. Also remember, repentance, a lot of times, and Dr. MacArthur does this all the time in his study of Matthew, Matthew John the Baptist, repentance, repentance all the time. You bet. How come? John the Baptist came to the nation of Israel. Jesus came to the leadership of the nation of Israel, exhorting them to repent, change their mind. I'm Messiah. I'm here. The kingdom is now if you will receive it. You need to change your way, your mind and your way. But that was for Israel about a national theocratic change. That's why John never uses it in the Gospel of John when he's talking about what's a condition for receiving eternal life. Repentance is not a condition in the Gospel of John. Now that may be a little too much. It's just easier to say repent means a change of mind and get on with it, but that's too easy. There's a little more to it. That's why I'm enjoying talking to you, because you can elaborate and extrapolate on a bunch of these things and everything and provide uh, some clarity on some aspects. So, but you're right. The audience has got to be key when you're exegeting scripture. Who is the author writing to? Who's the main audience of it? And arguably, uh, many scholars would say Matthew's written to a Jewish audience. You have that aspect of repentance and the fact that Christ is coming, trying to offer the Messianic kingdom at that time, and they didn't believe he was who he said he was. Like C.S. Lewis said, we all have to be faced with that question eventually. And so I appreciate your uh, elaboration on that. Have you ever heard the term probation security or probation salvation? Have you ever heard that term? Yeah. Can um, you explain what you believe that means? Well, I'll tell you what I think I I'll tell you what I think I know. And so I don't want to put words into anybody else's mouth, but I'll tell you what I think I know. During the um, Puritans in America, when a person became a Christian, quote unquote, they would often put them on probation. They would wait to see how they began to live. Well, now, can you imagine if you're living in a Christian community in a colonial America and everything is wrapped around the church, the civil government is the, the civil magistrate is the spiritual magistrate. Everything is church and you become a Christian and they say you're on probation, how do you think you're going to live? Very puritanical. You're going to obey. And after a while, they're going to say, you show evidence of being one of the elect, 
therefore you're one of the elect, you're off probation. Now that's historically. I think you might mean a little more of the more recent probational stuff, but it comes from the same mindset. There are those who believe that in order to be justified, all you have to do is believe, truly believe, really believe. But in order to be saved, you have to have works to vindicate your salvation. Therefore, the time between initial justification and final vindication, you're on probation. And the only way you get out of probation is by good works. Now, John Piper articulates a form of this. He would actually say you're justified by faith, but you're saved by a faith with works, which become vindicating, Romans 2, vindicate you before God because you are justified by works, Romans 2, verse 12, I think he says. So this is Dr. Piper's way of, of basically saying, I hold to the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola Christ. I hold to sola fide, sola faith, only faith. I hold that you're saved only by faith alone, but you have to have a faith that works. There must be the fruit of it. And if you don't have enough of it, you're not vindicated at the final judgment. Well, in that case, you never actually have eternal, you, you do have eternal security, you just don't know it. In fact, you have no assurance because if you don't live good enough, you have no reason to believe you're saved. So that's my understanding of how they're using probationary salvation. It's the difference between justification on the one hand in one point time and final vindication. Uh, Dr. Piper calls it in his book, future grace, future grace. There's a point of, and he gets this from um, uh, Dan Fuller, Daniel Fuller, who was his teacher. Everything, all of Dr. Piper's soteriology comes out of Dan Fuller in his book, Unity of the Bible. Read his book, Unity of the Bible by Fuller, then read Future Grace, and you'll see they're just, they're just one continuum. So probationary thought does not leave much room for assurance of salvation, and that's where Calvinism comes in and says, you can have assurance as long as you're good enough, but if you're no longer good enough, you have no reason to believe you're saved. And that's interesting because then whenever you talk to an individual about when does the indwelling of the Holy Spirit occur, if it occurs at the moment of salvation, a moment of conversion, if you will, how do you truly know you have the Spirit according to the view of works for maintenance of salvation and everything also? And there's a lot of problems when you get into pneumatology and the role of the Spirit as far as salvation is concerned. Uh, you touched on it a little bit. If you, uh, well, before we get to that one, have you heard of neonomianism? Yes. Neonomianism. Could yeah. you elaborate what is neo? A, a lot of people are familiar with antinomianism because, as a free grazer, they want to charge that antinomianism against the law. The fact that a free grace believes that you could just live any other way and still be saved. And while I would posit, yes, because our salvation is predicated on the finished work of Christ on the cross, not on my obedience to the law. Uh, however, comma, free grace would argue that because of the depth, the magnitude, the grace, the love, the fact that grace was not cheap, but it was by the precious blood of the lamb that was spilt that paid for the salvation of me, you, and all those others, 
it's because of that we need to make sure that we are living in recognition and in love and adoration of that and through a process called sanctification as well. But there's this other school of thought called neonomianism. Could you elaborate on that? So anti means against, namos means law. So if we say I'm against the law, now you have to fill that in. Against the law for what? I do not believe you have to keep Mosaic law to become a Christian. So by that definition, I am an antinomian. By that definition, most Calvinists are antinomian. Historically, though, when Anne Hutchinson was in colonial America, they said she was an antinomian because she didn't think you had to keep the law to get saved nor to be saved. Now, today, Louis Burkhoff, who wrote back in the 1940s, 1950s, his systematic theology, he was a great Calvinist, he said there was a third use of the law. The third use of the law, the Mosaic law in the life of the Christian is to be used to guide them in their sanctification. Now, we would say what Paul said. What did Paul call the Ten Commandments? He, he called them a letter, or he called them a ministry of death. 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. A ministry of death. Which ones? The ones etched on stone tablets. That's what he said. It's a ministry of death. The Mosaic law was not meant to give you eternal life. It was meant to show you that you needed eternal life and to guide you once you had it as a, as a theocracy. But the, the law is not what we live by. We are not under the law system. The law came through Moses, grace and truth through our Lord Jesus Christ, John 1 said. So we're not under that system. Burkhoff wanted to keep us under that system. Now, the neonomian, that simply means new, neo, new, namas law, the new law. This is simply a new way to use the old law. This is Burkhoff, third use of the law. So a neonomian says, Mosaic law doesn't save you, but, no, but Mosaic law is the way you know that you are saved if you live according to it. Well, I don't want to live according to the law of Moses because it's the law of Moses. I want to live according to the law of Christ, which is the New Testament, the law of love, faith working through love. I think the book of Galatians was written to try to get us to not live under Mosaic law. The whole book was written against it. Now, Paul didn't say, go out and live with licentiousness. No, not under law. That does not mean libertarianism under you know, licentiousness. It means we live with liberty under the law of Christ. So your question is actually bringing in a systems issue. How do they want to use the Old Testament system in a New Testament framework? There's a new movement. It's called progressive covenantalism. This is made up of people who used to be reformed covenant, new covenant theologians, who now have moved to what's called progressive covenantalism. And they're trying to get rid of 
or clean up some of the misuse of the Mosaic law and yet retain Reformed theology. So this is Reformed theology moving, theologically speaking, trying to find a new way to express itself. This is somewhat similar or at least analogous to dispensationalism that moved from classic to Reformed to a progressive dispensational thought. So theology is always in transition. It's always you know, dissecting itself and adding and changing and coming into something new. So yes. I'm sorry, go ahead. So neo-nominism is simply the new way of figuring out how to use the Old Testament law or Burkhoff's third use of the law. And it always seems like through church history, if one were to study the centuries and everything, that there's always some sort of theological discussion as far as whether it's Arianism, Pelagianism. It seems like for the last, for a while now, it's been this Calvinism, Arminianism debate. So I, I don't know if this is just part of the church history and just what major doctrines are, are really at the heart of the generations, but it's quite interesting when you look at that. You were alluding to it uh, before we were briefly talking about it, but the term final salvation uh, which I believe is a Calvinist term. I believe I heard John Piper use it before as well. Could you elaborate on what the Calvinists mean by final salvation? And does it, does it mean that there is a future salvation of God's people? Well, I think it depends on who you talk to. Dr. Piper, in his book, Future Grace, talks about a future salvation. Now, free grace people, we talk about salvation in three tenses, right? We, we were saved. We call that justification. We are being saved. We call that sanctification. And we are going to be one day glorified, fully saved. We call that glorification. If you believe in trichotomy in your anthropology, you believe you're a body, soul, spirit. So if you believe that, you could say, my spirit gets saved by being justified. My soul gets saved through sanctification. My body gets saved through glorification. So you don't have to be a trichotomist to hold to that. But the three views of salvation, free grace people tend to believe justification, sanctification, glorification. Now, in the reform movement, uh, Dr. Piper would say you're justified by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Therefore, there must be a body of works in your body. And if there are, then one day you will stand before God at the judgment, which in his mind, I think, is the great white throne. And you will then be vindicated by your works. You will be vindicated by your works, which will prove you had faith in the beginning. So once again, how do you have assurance of salvation? You have to be obedient. Uh, Dr. Piper used this analogy once in a sermon, and I don't want to quote him out of context, so I, but I do think this is, this is what he said. He said, if, if I ever leave my wife, then you will know I was never saved. Now, he was not saying he was going to leave his wife, and he did not leave his wife. That's not the point. The point is, if I stop living godly, 
that'll prove I never was saved. Now think of that. Dr. Piper is a very godly man. I mean, he is a strident disciple of Jesus. But in his thinking, it is theoretically possible that he might stop and go wrong. And if he did, that would prove he never was saved. See, one thing I'm, I'm loving about, about you is uh, a lot of times, and we talked about this previously, just the polemic of people saying that there's this disdain, this hate uh, between different sides of this soteriological camp. And it's clear that uh, your personality is not of such that you truly believe that, you know, whether it's John Piper or MacArthur or Calvin, these are people that are knowledgeable people that you believe that they are disciples. They're just wrong on this particular matter. And so I love the fact that you're coming with it from a gracious, uh, loving standpoint. I just want to put that out there. But yeah, the, the final salvation and the vindication at the end, well, I couldn't understand how anybody would figure that would be the great white throne judgment when we see all of those people are cast into the lake of fire from a literal uh, hermeneutic, if you will. But then how does that not speak to the probation security of an individual? And again, what, whether it's Arminian or Calvinism, once we start looking into the actual theology, there is no eternal security. There is no assurance of that salvation outside of continually to make sure you're doing good works and good deeds. And we've already talked about the subjectivity of that, which leads me into the next. The next one, I have like three verses that I'm going to ask you to see if you could just extrapolate and exegete for us. Uh, first one in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 2. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, By which also are you saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Does that mean a Christian can lose their salvation if they forget to keep in memory what Paul had preached? Well, once again, in, in most exegetical work, you have rival interpretations, right? Rival interpretations. So if you're an Arminian, you look at this and you say, aha, Paul is warning them that they could lose their eternal life if they don't live right. If you're a Calvinist, you look at this and say, aha, Paul is warning that some people who think they are saved aren't really saved, and the way you discover if they're saved is if they keep doing good works. And the interesting thing of that is, remember the book we're in, we're in 1 Corinthians, we're at the end of the book. Well, we've had 14 chapters of Paul dealing with their sin. And he never questions their eternal life. He just says, what's wrong with you people? And by the way, we're going to get to 2 Corinthians, and we got another long book where he does the same thing. But he doesn't question their eternal life. He warns them about judgment, but not about hell. Now, third option, if you're a free grace person, you look at that. And you recognize a couple of things. Number one, 1 Corinthians 15 contains, and it's a very long chapter. Now, the chapters aren't in the Bible. We made them. But in chapter 15, there is the longest description of resurrection you ever find. It's the theology of resurrection. It's the hinge 
if Jesus didn't die, we're dead in our sin, right? Vain. Vain. What's vain? Well, look what Paul says in verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. And your faith also is vain. Right? And then we have all this talk about theology. Paul's point is, if you believed, but the resurrection isn't true, you believed in vain. So Paul's not questioning whether they're saved. He's questioning the issue is the resurrection. And if the resurrection isn't true, we're all given up. It's all vain. My preaching to you is vain. The message was vain. Your belief was vain. None of it matters. So three ways of looking at this passage. Arminian, believers who go to hell. Calvinist, people who think they're believers who will go to hell. Or is Paul talking about, I preach this, the death and resurrection of Christ, but if the resurrection never took place, it's in vain to believe it. It's in vain to hold it. That's, I think, how I deal with that. Wonderful. Another one, I, I've heard uh, Calvinists use this quite often. And actually, Arminius, I, I guess, would probably be the ones that use this towards their theology more so, possibly. But it's found in Galatians chapter 5, verse number 4. It says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Fallen from grace. Someone espoused the teaching that you have lost your salvation and fell into a works-based law of legalism. What does it mean to have been fallen from grace from a free grace perspective? Well, I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind. Paul is writing in Galatians to Jewish Christians in the church, in the, the region of Galatia. Some take it it's in the northern North Galatia, South Galatia, depending on that, comes up with a different date. But for whatever, he's writing in groups of churches in the region of Galatia. And very early, this is a very early book of Paul, maybe 40, 45. Um, there are also these people called Judaizers. Jews who believe you got to keep the law. They were teaching Christians you need to keep the law. And Paul's saying, heck no, you don't have to keep the law. That won't save you and that won't sanctify you. No, no, no. Now, notice what Paul says. Let me read a little bit of this and emphasize a few pronouns. It was for free, verse 1, freedom Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Don't be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Us, the church. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, the church, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. If you're a believer, and now you think you need to go get circumcised and buy into the Jewish system, that's not going to do any good because Christ will not work and operate in the Mosaic system. Notice again. And I testify again to every man. Okay, now he's just opened it up. Every man 
who receive circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You're putting yourself under circumcision means you're putting yourself under the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace for we through the spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persecution did not come, uh, this persuasion did not come from him who calls you. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you shall bear his own judgment, whoever he is. But I, brothers, you hear all those pronouns? <clears throat> I think what Paul is saying is, if you're a Christian, you've been justified by faith, and going back into the law will not add anything. It'll, in fact, cut off your dependence upon Christ. That does not mean they're going to go to hell. It just means you're screwed up in your thinking. You trusted Christ for eternal life and justification. Now you want another system? You're, con you're convoluted. However, if Paul's saying to you Judaizers, you're not justified either. If you, if you do that, you can't get justified by that. In fact, he says, I wish those people would go mutilate themselves, castrate themselves. So I think Paul's talking to believers who have received the gift of eternal life, but they're toying with the legal system. And he says, what are you, crazy? That won't do you any functional good. And philosophically, that cuts off and does away with the system you bought into, which was Christ. So, no, this does not teach that a Christian can lose his salvation. It does teach that if a Christian decides he wants to go under the Roman Catholic system, he has fallen from grace. He's still a Christian. He's just now very, very confused. And trust me, there are a whole lot of Christians that are very, very confused. They have theology that's all mixed up. If you're a Mormon and you become a Christian, you do not immediately lose all of your Mormon confusion. Same if you're a Catholic. It takes time. It takes the Apostle Paul writing you a letter articulating for six chapters grace, faith, not law. And they still didn't get it. No, you're completely right. Would it be safe to... Uh... To say, like you had mentioned earlier from John chapter 1, that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, and Jesus was talking to the religious leaders about the truth, and the truth will set you free. Leaving, leaving the Mosaic law and the legalism that the religious law had strict adherence to that kept them in bondage, whereas the grace provided the freedom in Jesus Christ. Would that be a fair exegete as well for that passage? I, th I think that is the overall picture. I think what our Reformed friends struggle with, and I, and I know it's true because I've asked them. I mean, I asked Wayne Grudem this question. I said, Wayne, what is wrong with our system? He says, Fred, I'm afraid you're going to give assurance to somebody who thinks they're a Christian, but they're not. I said, Wayne, the only people I'm going to give assurance to are people who, who said, I 
have trusted Jesus Christ as my sin bearer, the one who died and rose again to give me eternal life. That's the person I'm going to give assurance to. What's wrong with that? Well, I'm afraid that some of these people aren't really saved. And then I said to him, I said, well, Wayne, here's the good news. In your system of double predestination and total sovereignty, nobody will ever go to heaven who's not supposed to go to heaven, and nobody will get out of hell who God didn't send to hell in your system. So you don't have to worry about anybody having false assurance because God ordained it from the very beginning in your system. In that conversation, just, again, lately I've been drawn to the term probation security. And it just really hits the nail on the head as far as where the theology takes somebody to, to where just because someone professes to be a Christian doesn't necessarily mean they are a Christian because they have to do X, Y, and Z. Or like Matthew 7, by their fruit, you will know them, which totally isn't talking about the genuineness of a conversion, but the message of a false prophet. But one final passage I want to see if you can uh, elaborate on is one that I actually wrote a bit about in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 5. And Paul says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove yourselves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. Does this mean that a Christian cannot be sure of their salvation unless they are constantly examining their walk? If not, what does it actually mean? Well, Daniel, you keep picking all the best uh, passages. Yeah, this is a really important passage. Uh, I remember Dr. MacArthur and I were talking about my, my work in, in his theology. We were, we were talking one day, and he said to me, he said, well, you know, Paul exhorts us that we should all question whether we're saved. And I looked at him, and I said, where? I was innocently stupid, I guess. I said, really? Where? He said, well, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. I said, are we supposed to do that? Yeah, regularly. You should regularly wonder if you're really saved, because if you wonder if you're saved, then you'll go back, look at your life, see good works, be convinced, and then you'll have assurance again. And I went away from that part of the meeting just going, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's how that works. However, Something very important to recognize in chapter 13 is what's also found in chapter 12 and chapter 11. So if you don't mind, we go back to chapter 11, and Paul talks about these imminent apostles. Look at verse 5 of chapter 11. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. There were evidently new apostles who called themselves the super apostles, who said, Paul, you're old, we're new. Corinthians, you ought to listen to us. And Paul is saying, hey, fellas, I'm still the apostle Paul. I'm not inferior to these people. Look at verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You get that? That's how Paul's looking at those people. Then you go to chapter 12 and look at verse 11. 
I've become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been uh, com commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. So Paul is trying to protect the church from the false apostles who are saying they're great and Paul's not. Paul is actually loving them and protecting them from this. Then, verse 20, Paul's fear. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances, all things that were found in the first 12 chapters of the book. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, sensuality, which they have practiced. Paul's coming to them. He's concerned that they're listening to the false apostles. He says, I'm the true apostle, and I'm afraid when I come and I find you, I won't find you to be the way you should be. But what's interesting is the Corinthians were questioning the way Paul was. They were doubting him and the faith in him. Now let's look at chapter 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance, to those who have sinned in the past and all the rest as well, that's going back up to verse 20, those people, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Woo, that's a mad apostle. You don't want a mad apostle coming to your church. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, right? They're wondering if I'm still the hot guy. You're looking for proof that I'm him and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he believes because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. So now Paul turns the tables. You test yourselves. You want to test me if I'm in the faith? You test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. What should you do? Test yourself. Examine yourself. Or don't you recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is operational in you, Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test. But I trust you'll realize that we ourselves don't fail the test. So they were challenging Paul's apostleship and operation of the faith. And Paul says, I'm afraid when I come to you, you're not going to be the people I want you to be. You better examine your own life to see if you're operating in the faith, because I'm not so sure you are, because you're listening to the false apostles. And if you're not, when I get there, I'm going to deal with you. Now notice how he ends it. Verse 7, 
Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved to you, but that you may do what is right, even though we should appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. But we pray for that you might be made complete. For this reason, I'm writing these things to you while absent. Get this. In order that when present, I may not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Well, that goes back to chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. He doesn't want to come and tear them down. But if he comes and they're still sinning and not approved, he will deal with them. Now, this word approve and test, these are words used about evaluating your life at the Bema seat. Paul understood his life would be tested and evaluated at the Bema seat. Paul said in chapter 9, verse 24 to 27, I beat my body black and blue lest I be disqualified, judged guilty. Paul wasn't worried he was going to lose eternal life, Arminian. Paul wasn't worried he wasn't a Christian, Calvin. Paul was concerned about being rewarded faithfully at the day of Jesus Christ. And he wanted to be approved. And he wants the Corinthians to be approved, but they won't be approved if they listen to the false apostles. So Dr. MacArthur's view of this, I think, is totally wrong and misses the whole context of chapter 11, 12, and then chapter 13. See, and then notice, look how Paul ends it, yeah. verse, 15, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another. Good night. What kind of a mood shift is that? I mean, he's just sitting there spanking them, spanking them, warning them. And then he's like, oh, my gosh, my brothers, I love you. I hope you're doing great. I want to come and see you. Woo. That's a pastor. No, that's, that's totally right. Because uh, you got <clears> to <throat> deal with the sin in, in people's lives and, and where they're not living right. I love how you, a lot of people, I, I've heard the rule as far as hermeneutics is concerned, the 2020 rule, trying to understand a particular text. You want to go 20 verses for before, 20 verses after, try to get the surrounding context. But uh, sometimes it, to get full clarity, we have to go chapters uh, ahead, chapters behind to understand, because like you said, chapter and verse divisions were something we added. These were original letters. <laughs> this would have been a very long letter, and I wonder how long it would have taken to read it all but in order to get the full totality and clarity of what's being said in a verse sometimes we have to do the bible justice do god's words justice by reading chapters ahead to find out okay where's the starting point of this exposition and then we get to this point okay now it sheds light on the clarity and even peter talks about in second peter chapter 3 verse 14 about being blameless and and unashamed at the return of Christ. It's not that Peter was writing that we're to be nervous, that we're going to be uh, able to have the righteousness of Christ and we'll go to heaven. It's talking about the judgment seat, the Bema seat, and just working uh, through the love of Christ for a community, for people being in the hands of feet of Christ, not for salvation, but because of salvation. And then Jesus does promise rewards in heaven, which again, I think uh, it's not in this interview, but Calvinism seeks to 
remove the reward system, if you will, at the Bema seat. And if someone has to strive for holiness, or like Arthur Pink says, that if there's reserve in your obedience, you're on your way to hell. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't fit with 1 Corinthians 3, where the works are gold, gold, silver, precious stones, and wood, hay, and stubble. But there are some Christians that are not going to have the works to show the Christian service. Now, they're still going to be saved, praise God. However, comma, the promise of rewards where Jesus says, lay treasure up in heaven, uh, that would be missing from that individual's life. And I don't believe Calvinist soteriology allows for the rewards-based system at the judgment seat of Christ. So Overall, you're right. The Calvinistic system <clears throat> does not have a very well-articulated view of reward. Dr. Grudem, to his credit, he does believe in a Bema seat. He does believe in the Bema seat that's different than the great white throne. Not everybody does. I mean, I've, I've heard a number of the reform people, they've blended the, the Bema seat is the same thing as the great white throne. Well, they don't have a millennium to separate them because they're all millennial. So there's no time frame in between. So those are just two judgments that are the one judgment. I've always looked at it this way. There are two motivating mechanisms for me as a Christian to serve Christ. One, my appreciation of what he has done for me. I was going to hell. Now I'm going to heaven. When Jesus got me, he didn't get a good deal, but he redeemed me. And I am appreciative the rest of my life. So my appreciation for what he has done for me. But the second motivation mechanism is, his appreciation of what I do for him. And that's the reward system. I appreciate what he did for me. That motivates me. But one day he will, he will appreciate what I have done for him at the Bema seat. We call that well done, good and faithful servant. There is nothing wrong with both of those motivations because both of them are in the Bible and they are repeated time and time again in the New Testament in every book. Amen. Appreciate that. Well, that's pretty much it. Uh, do you have any final closing thoughts you'd like to share or anything before we close out this interview? You know, I simply think a, a, one big way of keeping this straight is by realizing that the message of John 3.16, and I think we all know that, is not the same message as Luke 14, where Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my disciple, then you need to love me more than father and mother. If you want to be my disciple, you, you have to be able to carry your cross daily. If you want to be my disciple, you need to give up all your stuff. Luke 14 is a discipleship message. John 3.16 is a justification message. Those are not the same thing. Many of our Reformed friends would say those are the same message. They would simply say, Luke 14 is interpreting what John meant by believe. I do not think that's true. I think I know what John meant by believe. And it's not confess, confirm, commit, surrender, yield, promise, beg, never sin again. That's way too far. So we need to approach this both at an exegetical level and a theology level. Can I pitch two books? One is called Free Grace Soteriology by Dr. Dave Anderson. This is a fabulous book. You can get it on Amazon. 
published by us at uh, Grace Theology Press. This is top flight material. The second is a book called A Defense of Free Grace Theology. I'm the editor and author as well as four other men, uh, Dr. Anderson, Dr. Wilson, Dr. Bing, uh, Dr. Tanner, and uh, Dr. Dillow. This is a book in response to a book that Wayne Grudem wrote. Wayne Grudem wrote a book called Free Grace Theology, Five Ways It Diminishes the Gospel. Well, after a long dialogue with Dr. Grudem and whatever, I decided we needed to write a book. I put together a team, and that's, that's the result of it. So those are some books that will give you insight onto these topics. And the big picture is this is an inside discussion with family. One day we're going to all sit at the seat and at the feet of Jesus, and he is going to evaluate not only what we did, but why we did it and how we did it. And I want him to say, Fred, I'm glad you were kind and truthful and gracious as you presented opposing views. We, we owe it to our brothers to be that way, but we owe it to the Lord because that's what he expects of us. Amen. I appreciate that. You know, one of the, one of the most influential people in my Christian uh, life was, a, was an ardent Calvinist. And even though we didn't agree soteriologically, I would argue that visibly, I don't think there was any, anyone who's shown they love Jesus as much as this person, at least, you know, to me and everything, that just because we disagree on soteriology doesn't mean that they're not saved. It doesn't mean to them that we're not saved, whatever the case is. It's just discussing matters of God. And like you said, a lot of times the Calvinists are very uh, much with the preservation of the word of God as far as wanting to use sound hermeneutics, though I would disagree in misinterpretation. And a lot of times it's not like they're just coming at it willy-nilly. But that being the case, anybody that's watching this, I would just ask and petition that we just cease from the regurgitation that we do as Paul commended uh, those in Berea, that we would search the scriptures to see whether the things be so. Be your own Berean to see if your view, your theology holds water. And if we can remove the biases, the presuppositions that we carry to scripture as much as that's possible. And just know that whether it's Arminianism or Calvinism, there's not a view that truly teaches the eternal security of a believer or the blessed assurance of salvation from either of those views. And so again, the false dichotomy, it's not either or that in the middle, like Dr. Shea had said, we have something called free grace, biblical grace, and the fact that what does God's word say? John three sixteen. God loved the world so much that he said his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a present tense that the moment of belief you have that eternal life and the fact that the holy spirit's indwelling in you and the holy spirit is the earnest of our inheritance he is the promise that we will be saved the kept the power being kept unto god until the last day and so just if you've trusted christ as your savior and you truly trusted christ then just know you have security and assurance of that salvation uh so dr Shea, i want to thank you for your time today uh Thank you for your interview, your insight, your exegesis and everything. I uh, just want to go ahead, if it's okay with you, I want to put some links in the description box of this video as far as Grace School of Theology. And I'm trying to find if you have links to those books. Otherwise, I can pull the Amazon links and put them on the descriptions as well.
That way people have access to the book, Defensive Free Grace Theology and Free Grace Soteriology. So Dr. Shea, again, thanks for spending time with us. Though they're still watching, God bless. Thank you. Uh, do, do, do.